Hello, everybody. <clears throat> so we're bringing you Black Digest on Monday, November 25th, if I'm not confusing my days. 26. At Black Height, 551,597. So what is up, guys? What is up, man? It's, uh, it's not the price. I think it's just like everybody's a little up and rattled about that. That's for sure. Been uh, observing that a lot. But uh, what's been going on over there? And how you been doing, Janine? Oh, uh, you know, just getting insulted by another national security reporter. Same old, same old. They don't like it whenever the truth comes back at them. Janine, stop making up conspiracy theories, okay? Nothing nothing happened, okay? It was a, f- a fictional source for the, for the, for the, the pasteboard. It's nothing to see here. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, it's something that happens to me all the time where I accidentally copy and paste something, like entire paragraphs, not just like a word, but entire paragraphs from a document that doesn't exist. I do that all the time. And of course, if anyone asks me where I copy and pasted it from, I'll just say, nowhere. Well, you know how that goes. You know, things, things just appear. They, they didn't exist before that. It's how government bureaucracy works. Oh, yeah. And um, I've also been given a theory that the uh, 2011 email from a former Department of State deputy was actually false. I mean, to be fair, that's actually believable because, you know, it's not like the State Department doesn't lie, but... <laughs> interesting theory and then when i asked well where is the rebuttal for the fact that the email was a lie she kept insulting me and continuing to insult me and apparently found pleasure in the fact that i could not find the superior evidence that she was talking about ah well what are you what are you gonna do twitter is not the the place for in-depth intellectual discourse well, I mean, I actually thought she was, I'm, not, I'm completely not joking anymore. I thought she was someone who was of intellectual depth, uh, which is what I thought of the, nas- uh, the last uh, female national security reporter that I talked to, who was under the impression that I was Assange's secret girlfriend, and that's why I was defending him. And not even defending him, I was more defending the fact that they had received a certain set of documents from a person who had verified the set, the set that they had, um, and apparently me pointing that out makes me his secret girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know, got nothing to do with, you know, ethics or anything like that. It's a, it's a, he's a guy and you're a girl. That's the story. 
All right. Well, enough about Assange, where it seems only a single person did not catch the subtle references. <laughs> so let's let's get into this, uh, this first story here. Uh, so I hope uh, most of you remember uh, a while back, a security firm, uh, Level K, <clears throat> recently made uh, a vague uh, tweet uh, a week or so ago talking about a major vulnerability in Ethereum that a large number of exchanges were susceptible to. And <clears throat> honestly, I, I would really not go so far as to call this a vulnerability per se as just an overall architectural shortcoming of Ethereum and that a large number of exchanges in the ecosystem were not taking the known best practices to really safeguard themselves from this. And it kind of weaves together with this uh, token called uh, gas token, <clears throat> which is pretty much a way to kind, it's kind of like a, a function to hedge um, the the gas price fluctuations on ethereum based on a feature in ethereum where you are actually refunded for deleting a state on the ethereum chain to kind of incentivize not keeping state uh in the system that isn't necessary and it, this architectural shortcoming when when you're not safeguarding against it in combination with this token takes something that really gives no economic benefit to the person exploiting it um, and turns it into something that they actually can realize an economic benefit. So pretty much when, when you're dealing with Ethereum, you, you can look at like normal basic uh, accounts that are simply used for sending and receiving money and then more complex smart contracts that actually perform an intensive computation, which is really the, the root justification for the entire gas model in terms of Ethereum's fee structure to try to stem the, the risk of infinite loops pretty much just crashing the entire system. And see, the, the, the issue with this is here, if I send money to a contract that's performing intensive computations, I am the one who's paying the fees there. So it, it creates this dynamic where it, as a sender, there can be a lot of uncertainty in terms of the fee cost when sending money to a more complex smart contract. And it kind of leads into the flaw here. If you, if you don't set hard-coded limitations on the amounts of uh, gas that will be paid in a transaction, then people who construct malicious smart contracts can take advantage of this or, or not not even necessarily inherently malicious but just a, a contract that performs very intensive computation and drain all of the money in, in an account just because it sent money to the smart contract and so the the big issue here was a, a decent number of exchanges were not actually taking that precaution to safeguard their where you could pretty much have everything in their hot wallets completely drained by a, a contract going through a lot of computations. And how this kind of ties in with the, the gas token thing to create an economic incentive to exploit this 
is uh, the kind of storage refund mechanism in Ethereum. Uh, somebody created a gas token, which pretty much it does. There, there's two variations of it. One is you just store data in the contract, and then later down the line, when you want to kind of facilitate the refund, you send to the contract and delete the data. And this can refund up to half the gas cost of a transaction. And so this kind of creates that, that hedging dynamic that I spoke of where you can build up uh, gas tokens or data in the contract to delete later when gas fees are very cheap. And then later when the, the gas prices fluctuate and, and go much higher, you can simply delete this and realize the, the refund to save costs on gas when it's high. And another variation of it is to actually create an entire contract to be able to delete the entire contract from the chain because that as well uh, has this kind of refund dynamic built in so that the, it kind of acts as an economic incentive to check just insane state blow up, which would obviously raise validation costs and not that that's really fixing the uh, the overall validation issues Ethereum has, but it's kind of mitigating it. And so in combination with uh, this architectural flaw that some exchanges weren't defending themselves properly against, you could withdraw to a smart contract that's going to perform intensive computation and actually use this to generate a large number of gas tokens which are then something that actually has an economic value. And so this allows you to take what would just be uh, the ability to pointlessly burn money and actually use it to generate these gas tokens, which can realize a profit for whoever's exploiting this flaw. And so, like again, at this, I, I wouldn't really call this a, a, an exploit contract or unintended behavior overall general flaw in the, the the architecture of how gas is handled in ethereum and a lot of these businesses that were vulnerable to this were just really not following best practices so as much as i would love to to just point and laugh at uh, another major smart contract bug in ethereum that that's not quite exactly what was going on here Although it is something that put a decent number of businesses at, at risk of a huge monetary loss. And so I kind of understand why Level K was using that language and describing it as this. But like this, this just, it, it goes to show that it's like the, the, the only risk in Ethereum isn't just that you, you write a contract. They're just overall mostly unfixable flaws in the entire platform architecture and that those are the kinds of things that you can't just tweak and fix a little bit like it, it's flaws baked into the entire way the system works yeah man i mean you know ethereum is definitely you know one of those that uh, you can go to and sort of say like the way that their token was issued and you can see through their foundation you can sort of point out these problems along the way and you know the DAO was definitely one of those uh where you could see that there was problems in the coding as well and uh you know 
that's just something inherent with solidity in itself. So, I mean, but the, in, but the backend architecture and just formulating the best practices, that's something that uh, I think everybody is kind of coming up at once, trying to figure out these best practices in the way that things should operate and the most efficiently and secure customers funds. But, uh, you know, I mean, I hope that uh, most of these exchanges that are taking note of this are going or, you know, doing taking moves to fix this because, uh, you know, I mean, it's Ethereum and, and everything. But, uh, you know, if they can try and save customers funds, that's a good thing. I mean, right now, a lot of people are hurting in crypto and, you know, lots of any sort of bad story, you're going to see it sort of taken and expounded on and thrown into the press. So I hope that they can, uh, yeah, make a move to fix this and get that best practices worked out to where their exchange architecture is up to speed. Because uh, it does feel like we're starting to, everybody's sort of coming up to figure out what these best practices are. So yeah, I mean, like, uh, I don't think I'd hold this against them or anything. I mean, as far as saying like it's a vulnerability, but it's certainly some something that needs to be handled. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you know, even not being an outright vulnerability or bug in a smart contract, it's it's still just showing huge shortcomings. I mean, like a, a simple non-Turing complete system like Bitcoin, like you don't even have to worry about these kinds of issues. Like simply sending money does not put me at risk of arbitrarily increased fees based on the action of the person receiving the money I sent. <laughs> like you, you don't have to worry about all kinds of complexities in, in the process of spending. You, you, it's, you just construct the transaction, you broadcast the transaction, and if the the receiver wants to do anything in terms of increasing fees to confirm it faster, all of those costs are bared by them. Like the, it is literally impossible for the receiver of any money I send to increase my cost for sending that money. And just the, the notion that a, a blockchain system is constructed where that is a realistic risk for the the sender is insane like that that entire architecture is ridiculous i'm not saying it is but you know there's definitely been you know manipulated fees before but certainly not where the sender gets to manipulate the fees from my end so um but yeah i could just see where they need to figure this out as far as just coming up with the best practice and getting it implemented. Mm. Okay, Shock Janine, you usually love making fun of uh, the, the blockchain that can't even do multi-sig, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not funny anymore. And I also heard, uh, is this at all related to the thing about how, um, I'm not sure if it was something that they actually publicly announced or if it was one of those things that was discussed as part of the secret Ethereum meetup uh, that happened uh, over the past couple months. Wasn't one of the things that they wanted to start charging rent for dApps? Um, yeah, I actually think I saw uh, Vlad uh, make a comment about that, but I haven't really been following uh, a lot of that stuff too closely. Yeah, I just find it funny because it's like, oh, you're you're doing rent seeking. <laughs> See what you do in there. 
Uh, trying to stay above board with all this going on in the price. Well, I mean, it's what it's—it's it's just an, an issue that you have to address when you're talking about like th these kinds of complex dynamics in terms of state management and just like how fast that can blow up. Like you need some kind of restrictive incentive that, that contains that bloat and the rate at which it can increase. I mean, it's like why everybody still in Bitcoin appreciates how important the block size is. Like it's, you can't just let those costs explode exponentially or the entire system unravels. And it's, it's really kind of funny, like over the last year or so, the more, like the, just like the, the more things happen on that system, it seems that they finally started acknowledging that reality when they've been just denying it for years. When you've had people point this out and like why it inevitably makes Ethereum just a non-viable project in the long term, because the entire premise of the platform is just pretending these issues don't exist and using it for things it shouldn't be used for. Yeah, they're, they're non-issues is the way I've always sort of heard it characterized like the way that Bitcoin's trying to solve this third party problem. That's not a problem. That's like the way it's all sort of framed. I mean, uh, it's, um, I don't know. It's certainly aggravating a little bit, but yeah, I can understand. It's like, uh, I don't know, all this stuff that's coming up recently with, you know, confirmed guidelines for ICOs and all that to where some of these projects, you know, they, uh, they carry weight, but I mean like, yeah, it's just like at least acknowledge the issues and try to take steps to fix it. And I mean, like as far as secret meetings, I don't know about secret meetings, but I mean, like I've seen some discussion between the EOS guys and the Ethereum guys at some of these meetups where they are trying to figure it out. But it's like I wish they would be more public about it, but they know that that would probably hurt the price pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like why I, I really can't take that project seriously or really respect anybody involved in it at this point. It's because they just keep like it's it's like they finally understood all of the, the problems that the platform has to deal with, but they just keep kind of lowballing the the solutions and not really standing up and being blatantly public about it. I mean, like when you had like the, the the really big push for a block size increase in Bitcoin happened. Like you didn't have the experts like hiding and, and not like it, it's saying that's a very stupid idea in public or like trying to create this impression that, yeah, we'll do that. But like in the shadows, like saying, no, no, we shouldn't. Like they stood up very loudly, very publicly and went like, no, like this will not work we can't do this and like they it, their prime concern wasn't how the price would react in the short term because people thought we had to do that it was like no this is not a technically tenable solution to this like we have to do something else yeah i mean it's important to see all that inf that you know the way that the infrastructure works within the system as far as nodes and miners and getting all that right i mean uh, that's where you know, Nakamoto consensus is pretty damn brilliant. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of people, they just uh, move right past that. They don't understand that, um, 
you know, that's a, it's really important that you have that architecture correct because if someone can't validate, then how are you getting rid of the third party? It's like, well, the third party's not a problem, but it is like, I do see like stuff publicly on the Ethereum subreddit where people are just like, they're exuberant. They're happy. They say plasma is going to win proof of stake. It's going to work. We got this thing going, you know, they're excited about it, but legitimately I've seen behind the scenes, like some guys that are legitimately worried about the way that Ethereum is planning on scaling and they understand that the node architecture is in a bad spot. So I mean, like, uh, yeah, I just wish it was a little bit more public about that. But I guess it's got a lot to do with just the architecture of Ethereum. I mean, like, everybody's kind of a little afraid to speak out against, you know, Vlad or Vitalik or pick a side and then get the arguments going where, you know, they really should just do that. I mean, like, the arguments going in Bitcoin have been pretty public and vocal. And I think it just gets the market to better understand what you're doing. And I mean, like, maybe that's just what they don't want. They don't want the market to understand. Of course they don't, because that would probably, in all likelihood, involve a violent downward correction. And uh, yeah, then what? What is the uh, the Ethereum Foundation going to do about paying for solving, air quote, solving these issues? I have no idea. It's a it's a tough spot to be in. Mm hmm. All right. So Janine. Did somebody in the Ohio state government hit their head or did somebody get woke? Um, I don't know. It's kind of a mixture to be honest. Uh, basically the wall street journal published an article yesterday that Ohio will be the first state, uh, in the U S to accept Bitcoin as medium of exchange for tax payments. But, uh, yeah, so for anyone wondering, there has been at least three other states that have made this claim recently. Uh, the state of Arizona almost did a similar thing in April of this year where their House of Representatives passed a bill that would allow residents of Arizona to, quote, pay their income tax liability using a payment gateway such as Bitcoin, Litecoin, or any other cryptocurrency recognized by the department. Uh, but according to Paul Vigna, who is, I think, the one of the at least one of the authors of this new article, um, that bill for Arizona was not signed into law, and it also was not pursued uh, into law for Georgia and Illinois. Apparently, they were also trying to do similar things um, in Ohio. I mean, this is probably the farthest it's ever gotten. Um, a website was set up uh, called OhioCrypto.com. Uh, very interesting because I looked at the uh, the archive of that domain and I think it's only been up for a few months now because an archive of it in August uh, showed that the domain was on sale for like 6000 US dollars or something like that. So it was bought very recently, uh, at least this year, last couple months. Um, but the website was apparently set up by the Ohio treasurer named Josh Mandel. Uh, who goes by Josh Mandel, Ohio, on Twitter. Uh, he hasn't tweeted, though, since January, and apparently he tried to run for a Senate seat and hasn't really been doing much. So a bunch of people were, I guess, a bit surprised. Um, I can't read the Wall Street Journal's take on it because that article is paywalled. Uh, but apparently he, uh, Mandel was reported to have said that he sees Bitcoin as a legitimate form of currency. Now that might get you excited because you might think, 
oh, well, does this mean that Bitcoin is being legitimized as uh, a currency by the Ohio State? Then the fact that they're accepting it as, uh, you know, a medium of exchange for tax payments. But first of all, no entity uh, could really be described, um, no entity that could be described as Ohio is actually accepting Bitcoin uh, in this case. What you would technically be doing, um, and at the moment, this option is only available to business filers, uh, someone said that they do have the intent to open it up to individuals, is uh, you can send your Bitcoin, if you're a business, to BitPay, who will then do something with it, and that is considered a legitimate way to pay your taxes. Now, the reason uh, this isn't exciting is because what they'll probably do is actually sell it for US dollars or basically you know, do an exchange or process the Bitcoin in exchange for US dollars, which they then pass on to the state of Ohio. Um, on the website, it says all payments are processed by our third party cryptocurrency payment processor, BitPay, under the how it works section on the homepage. So I don't really see this as particularly innovative. Oops, sorry. I don't see this as particularly innovative um, because uh, you know, anyone can set up a website and say, hey, I'll convert your cryptocurrency into fiat, and then you can use that fiat to pay taxes. Well, a lot of people already kind of do that, even though it kind of sucks to do that because of the capital gains, if you haven't been managing that properly. Uh, so this isn't super new. Um, I think the only possible benefit that might come of this, which has not been explicitly stated anywhere. Uh, mind you, it, um, I presume that the reason why they might want to use this is because maybe if you convert your Bitcoin via this BitPay partnership integration th thing, you may uh, not be liable for capital gains that you would normally incur by selling your Bitcoin in, in a different way through an independent, unrelated processor that doesn't have you know, some kind of deal with the treasury. Again, that that's just my theory. It hasn't been confirmed. Um, and that's the theory of a, a few other people. Uh, at, right, at the moment, it's just speculation as far as I can see. But uh, I would hope that that would be the case because otherwise I don't really see any benefit from registering with this program if it means that you still are liable for capital gains for selling your Bitcoin for fiat technically through this BitPay thing and then the and then BitPay sends off the fiat to Ohio. So and also before you go and register with this program or anything, um, there's been a few people that actually think it's like a scam or someone's attempting to do a scam. I don't think that's I mean it's it's not impossible because even though a whole bunch of like tech media and the Wall Street Journal and all of that have, you know, they, they seem to be under the impression that's legitimate. Of course, I would never put it past them to fall for a scam because they have in the past. Um, so before you go and give any of your information, like tax information, any of that to a website that just makes you excited, you should probably consult some kind of tax attorney to make sure that you don't get screwed over in some way by using this. Also, quick note, uh, there was a Fortune article published last September around the time that it was announced that the Swiss canton of Zug would accept Bitcoin for some municipal services. And I haven't been able to figure out what mechanism Zug or Chiasso, which is another municipality, I haven't been able to 
find out if they actually accept Bitcoin or if they have this similar uh, conversion through a third party process uh, set up um, or if they accept it directly. But I do want to point out that the price at the time of that article, September last year, the Bitcoin price was $4,300. That's for those of you who are freaking out recently about the price movement. It's really okay. Nothing, nothing is We're all gonna die. going to die. No. We're all going to die. Where's my cash at? Everybody's going to die. No, I'm really curious if this Ohio State uh, law is like, I, I mean, I'm wondering if this is real. Like, I'm trying to search up, like, what's their position on Bitcoin? Like, it's hard because right now everything's the story. It's even already updated in Wikipedia. But I mean, like, just quickly, I mean, like, you know, they've got the same FUD from a couple of years ago that others have had. And... Like I'm, I mean, we've seen people within organizations mine crypto and get in trouble and then, you know, see what the consequence is later. And I wouldn't be surprised if people within organizations within the government do something similar. That's where I'm thinking, like, it might be a scam and uh, just waiting to see who gets in trouble. But it could be Ohio trying to do it. But like you're saying, it sounds pretty stupid. I mean, like what you're going to give your Bitcoin over to OhioCrypto.com and then they're going to give it to BitPay. I mean, like, uh, yeah, I mean, like BitPay and uh, the way that they've been working with BIP70 and, uh, you know, that vulnerability that was found and just the way that they're going to manage that Bitcoin. That sounds like a bad idea, a really bad idea. I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, you're, you know, it might not be a scam. It probably, you know, is something to do with actual Ohio legislation and people within the government. But it's a stupid idea. I mean, like a lot of these states are trying to come up with some sort of guidance for taxes and you know um exchanges and the ability to transact with crypto but i mean uh the people that just say it's all right first are not going to be the people that you know get people to start paying their taxes in bitcoin it's going to be those that do it right and those that uh you know make sure that the legal framework is there and it's not going to come back and bite them and i mean like i don't know this just sounds like a pretty stupid architecture for paying your taxes I'll tell you what the scam is. BitPay struggling to find something to get people to spend money with them. <laughs> yeah, that was that. Cause like when I saw this story yesterday, my first thought was just like, Ohio? Why Ohio? Like of all the states in the US that would be the first to do this, I would not have picked Ohio. It's like, it's like the basement of Michigan. Like what, <laughs> what exactly, I just, I'm sorry for anyone who does live in Ohio, but your state is not particularly well known for doing um, national headline, exciting, innovative things. <laughs> That's where it's like a lot of this, as being in, from, in Colorado and sort of observing a lot of this going on in Wyoming and South Dakota and the way it's just like market signaling, it's like... I'm sure there's somebody there that wants to be involved, but I mean, you know, it really does take a little bit more as far as like even Colorado, even though we've got a lot of developers here and a lot of people working in the ecosystem, it's still hard to exactly come together and say like, this is what this means. And we're going to get the legal framework this direction to where everybody's going to be happy. So it's a, it's hard to say that, you know, somebody like Ohio is just going to come out of left field and just hit it out of the park with this uh, tax thing. So 
Yeah, it's kind of a that's the kind of thing that's really throwing me about it. I mean, like if it was one of these states that have already pretty active in the space, like, um, you know, Colorado, Wyoming, South Dakota, New Mexico, Texas, California, Nevada, um, Washington, Arizona. These, these are some states where, you know, I would take it a little bit more seriously. But this being the first thing out of Ohio just gets me wondering, like, you know, is this like just another play to try and um, get people to send their Bitcoin Fun times in Cleveland again. Still Cleveland. Come on down to Cleveland town, everyone. Under construction since 1868. See our river that catches on fire. It's so polluted that all our fish have AIDS. We see the sun almost three times a year. This guy has at least two DUIs. Flats look like a Scooby-Doo ghost town. Don't slow down in East Cleveland or you'll die. Our economy's based on LeBron James. Buy a house for the price of a VCR. Our main export is crippling depression. We're so retarded that we think this is art. It could be worse though, at least we're not Detroit. We're not Detroit. Oh man, those things are so funny, but you could do one about every little small town in every little state. Like, uh... Yeah, I mean, Ohio is, I've never been there, but um, I'm not going to rag on it too hard. I'm just saying it's pretty speculative as to the first pitch out of Ohio with crypto is all this. Yeah, pl playing that was a lot easier than, than thinking and having a real critical statement at this point. <laughs> I don't even want to think of what it would be for Texas. Oh, yeah. I they got a bunch of them. That, that, those guys, they're they're pretty damn funny. But uh, yeah, what's what else is we going should, on we with this? Children. <laughs> oh no no no! Like, uh, let's not talk about all this stuff going on. There's just you know, oh, so politicized. All right, junkyards. What's going in the junkyards now, Rick? Uh, are we gonna go into the junkyards first, or was there something about Assange first? Like, sorry. I was looking at the notes here. Janine? Oh, I mean, I can give like a quick two-minute update. Basically, the yeah. government has responded to the motion by, um, I think it's the Reporters Committee, um, which I mentioned, I think, in the last show or two about them basically trying to figure out whether this uh, sealed indictment is actually existing like to have the government actually unseal it and the government has responded saying we take full responsibility for the so-and-so copy and paste error that was made by uh turns out it was some guy named kellen dwyer um and he was he might actually be involved in the uh case against assange i saw that written somewhere and i didn't know that at all um but Basically, they came back and said, well, we, we take responsibility for this mistake, but we still neither confirm nor deny its existence, and you do not have a right to ask us for that document, um, which is what uh, created the joke that was made at the top of the show. Uh, yeah, it's pretty aggravating uh, seeing this uh, stuff come out and then everybody refute it, and then it just becomes a back and forth of like, is it true? It's like, uh, well, I mean, the guy's been living in an embassy for six years. I mean, that's not for no reason. All right. Yeah, but that's uh, 
You got something to say there, Shinobi, about Julian before we do go into the obsolete ASIC? No, I was just going to make a joke about Junkyard Cat. Junkyard Cats are standing on top of big piles of miners. Um, let me pull up these notes. So, uh, yeah, so quick point of discussion on these uh, images that were released earlier this week. You might have seen on Twitter these images of stockpiles of miners being wheelbarrowed out and being used for scrap, which spurred discussion around mining profitability and businesses shutting down due to the current price in Bitcoin. We have seen lots of misunderstandings with the mining ecosystem and FUD throughout the past year. And, uh, first, and at first, uh, this did seem like it was just rehashing uh, images from the flood in China's Sichuan province that wrecked all those miners in, Ju in July of this year. But... These images appear to be genuine. However, it is being painted with, you know, some FUD from all the price action just to try and get those clicks. So the reality is this has a lot to do with the mining ecosystem and people trying to keep their mining farms competitive in China. The YouTube channel Asia Crypto Today, which I wanted to highlight and uh, Coin Center News highlighted because uh, it's a pretty good source to get some information out of uh, Asia, what's going on over there. So. The YouTube channel Asia Crypto Today, uh, Asia Crypto Today, covered the story and discussed this with uh, Hugh Jai of uh, Saihuao Mining. I'm probably destroyed some of that. He was talking about how uh, this is just business as usual over there, and the problem of profitability is being overstated, saying, "quote Of course, old models are out of the game, like the picture shows, but that doesn't represent the majority." Electronics becoming outdated easily, for example, smartphones like iPhone 3, 4, of course they can be sold by the pound. It's normal life cycle, is what uh, he said in some translated remarks. So the reality is that the miners in China run these farms with the most efficient hardware available. Old hardware has to be repurposed or scrapped all based on metrics that does involve the price, but it's not the only factor. This just has to do with logistics of running thousands of miners, having restricted square footage and power to run those miners. Also, when you think about logistics of where these miners could be profitable, they'd have to ship to they'd have to ship them to retail customers that are using them for specific purposes to also cut cost. Earlier in the mumble, I was discussing this topic with Blockbane, who's a local miner in the area, and he was mentioning how uh, Per coin wars, the S7 is underwater in terms of uh, USD by about 50% compared to wholesale electric costs. Example, per month, uh, one may be able to grab $20 of coins from it, but it would cost you about $40 in electricity. That's with today's numbers. Earlier, Early last week would have been about break even in terms of dollars. But if you are also avoiding natural gas heating bills with that excess heat from the miners, you can justify mining through this bloodbath. Plus, you know, you would have to have a longer time preference. And, uh, you know, that's all, you know, really good points as far as like, why would they turn this into scrap instead of reselling them? Is because you would ha probably have to uh, sell them in areas where you're using them for other purposes, which the cost in shipping and just, uh, you know, logistics of selling them and all that, it's probably a lot easier when you're dealing with thousands of miners to just like, uh, you know, as a business decision, like let's uh, scrap these and get these new, more efficient ones. So um, also in this, uh, I linked uh, in the show notes, a discussion from Jonathan Bertrand on the topic of transactions increasing, even though power consumption is decreasing. 
which is indicative of all this new efficient hardware coming online. It's certainly an interesting time for mining and everyone in the Bitcoin space, really, like uh, the layer two being built out and more efficient miners with uh, more efficient code is helping the ecosystem really uh, be ready for that next bull run. But um, yeah, this kind of goes into this next story. But uh, did you guys have any point, any uh, comments on just these images and uh, what was going on with the uh, miners being scrapped? Um, no, my brain is starting to shut down. All right. Well, like I, I know, Janine, you've been bouncing in and out with uh, some connection issues. So I'll just keep going into this, uh, you know, because it just ties right in. So some more bad news for Bitmain, as there is a new class action lawsuit filed against them in a U.S. district court for North for Northern California. On the 19th, the, on the 19th of November, uh, the lead plaintiff, Gore Gavorkian, filed a complaint that, quote, until the complicated and time-consuming initialization procedures are completed, Bitmain's ASIC devices are pre-configured to use its customers' electricity to generate cryptocurrency for the benefit of Bitmain rather than its customers. Kevorkian purchased an S9 from Bitmain early this year where he faced difficulties getting the equipment configured and installed, saying, quote, During this time, the ASIC device were pre-configured to mine and deliver cryptocurrency to, to the defendant. Also during this time, the ASIC devices operated at full power mode, consuming a substantial amount of electricity at the point of expense. Kevorkian claims that this is unfair business practices, which, uh, quote, conveniently Bitmain crashes in on, cashes in on every second it takes to get the ASIC configured with the customer specifications and lays the substantial cost of operating the ASIC devices at the feet of its customers, end quote. Kevorkian and... Uh, Supposed other 100-plus members of the class action suit are seeking, quote, full restitution of all expenses incurred as a result of Bitmain's unfair and deceptive practices and an order requiring Bitmain to cease these acts of unfair competition alleged, which as of right now is totaling over $5 million. Coin Center makes a good point, though, that there is no way to tell how many people are actually represented in the suit because they could feasibly number in the hundreds of thousands. I mean, you're talking about anyone that purchased an S7 or uh, one of these other miners where they had this initialization process where, you know, it would be slow moving and strictly pointed at their pool. So uh, further, it notes that Bitmain always operates this way. Previously, when miners were in initialization mode, they could be set to consume less power. These allegations could be defended in court by Bitmain with the uh, terms and conditions of the purchase. However, uh, Nelson M. Rosario, a blockchain lawyer, explained, quote, if these allegations are true, and we are not saying they are, that's not good. Even under some sort of theory that customers agreed to this under the terms and conditions of their purchase or something like that, this is not a good look regardless of its legality. With respect to its legality, the plaintiff is alleging unfair business practices, unjust enrichment, received a benefit at someone else's expense, and conversion, which is basically stealing, end quote. So Gavorkian's suit is being uh, litigated by Robert Starr and the Frontier Law Center, who have successfully prosecuted class action lawsuits in the past. And uh, Bitmain responded to this story saying, telling Coin Center, quote, Bitmain does not use customer devices to mine. 
Mining for itself has long been part of Bitmain's business and it has always been transparent. You can find further information on its transparency policy here and hash rate disclosure here, which are links to their blog. But uh, honestly, we know from Bitmain's history that they haven't been very transparent or honest in their practices. We could talk about covert ASIC boost or Ampli to expose these, but those are pretty technical. This suit for the initialization process being tainted while also requiring customers to use Bitmain's pool to increase their own hash rate and rewards sounds kind of a little bit easier for a judge to understand and make a ruling on. And uh, it certainly doesn't look like good practices. So, but it does look like uh, Bitmain is a victim of their own circumstance from being the first to develop ASIC chips for mining. I could see it starting up where uh, they would they would want the highest likelihood for mining the next block and from developing the hardware with this uh, urge to be the best. I mean, it created this bad practice that doesn't allow their customers or competition, how you look at it, to come online immediately after shipment. And with the firmware pointing to their mining pool, it would increase that likelihood of getting the next block. So <clears throat> as a retail seller, however, as a retail seller, mining hard, hold up, I'm sorry. As a retail seller of mining hardware, Bitmain should have been considering the long game and that this commodity would reach a very high value that if their customers felt cheated, that could come back to bite them. And uh, since the activation of SegWit, we have seen an asymmetry of that rule set miners abide by and increased efficiency with practices that encourage the development of the ecosystem. For instance, the how long open source firmware or Brains OS and the way GMO is developing miners with retail customers wants and needs in mind, not just their own. I mean, so uh, yeah, with like uh, all these S7s becoming uh, less profitable and only for specific cases as uh, you know, these new efficient miners come on and uh, this class action lawsuit, the high stake in Bcash they've taken, this fighting between ABC and SV plus all the competition coming online is uh, got to be putting a major crunch on the company it'll be interesting to see how this uh ipo moves forward next year but um yeah what do you guys think about all this as far as the bitmain the uh you know what they're doing as far as with the uh, s7s and how exactly uh the mining ecosystem is doing with all this uh new efficient hardware coming online and the cost per transaction going down but the consumption of electricity you know, was uh, what do you guys think about this? I don't know. First, like the specific accusations against Bitmain, if these are true, are just beyond insane. Like, I mean, there's already been a lot of indication in in past that they produce equipment and then mine with it themselves before selling it. And I mean, that's one thing. But to literally have a device configured to immediately mine pointed at ant pools wallet the the minute it's plugged in in control of a customer that is just beyond insane like that's like i i like that that would really just blow my mind as far as how ballsy and like to what low levels bitmain would sink just to fucking scrape some pennies out of their customers pockets and I mean, you know, overall the mining landscape, I mean, I'm honestly a little worried about how low the price could go 
and how much hash rate that would take offline. But I mean, I guess this is really an important dynamic to, to see play out because my thinking historically has been that once some kind of threshold of hash rate is established, it's dangerous for the network for a, a large enough percentage of it to become economically inviable because that puts available hash rate on the table in terms of attackers who might want to bankroll uh, attacking the network because like people people forget that like yes electricity costs are a huge part of a mining operation and its expenses but you you also have manufacturing like that that is also a bottleneck and in terms of an attacker's perspective like it's you have queues at like these semiconductor fabs. Like it's not like you can just roll in and produce an infinite amount of whatever you want. It is a, the time at these fabrication plants is itself a scarce economic good. And that is another disincentive to attackers. But when you have the price drop drastically and you have a large amount of idle hash rate now that is not economically profitable, that kind of alters the dynamic in terms of attackers and that now they don't have to necessarily f deal with the bottleneck of producing hardware they can make attempts to just acquire it secondhand and i think like it's really important to see how that dynamic plays out when it's realized like how much hash rate can we lose and where exactly will that wind up It's certainly, uh, I don't know, like uh, like you're saying, it's good to see all this play out, and uh, it's certainly a struggle right now. I mean, the uh, whole thing going on there with the Bcash side drawing something away and the price going down and some people just getting, uh, yeah, I guess uh, wrecked and trying to step out, it's, it's good to see all these uh, levels of where this ecosystem is because, I mean, while, you know, all this stuff is pretty bad, like we're talking about with Bitmain, as far as like this initialization process. And, you know, if that's true, I mean, uh, while all this is going on, there's just more players entering the space. I think it's, um, you know, it's just sort of decentralizing the uh, the players in the space, not necessarily um, the amount of miners. I know a lot of people would rather it be even easier to mine. But, I mean, just as far as the number of players in the space, I think it's, it's a good thing that this is all going on. And I mean, evidence shouldn't be that hard to come up with. I mean, essentially, if you get one of these S7s and you reset it, it should go through the same process. That shouldn't be that hard to prove. Mm -hmm. It's definitely going to be an interesting thing to see. Right. Yes. Anything more to say on this one? No, just that those images were not from that flood. I see somebody in the chat saying that's where it was from, but uh, apparently those were genuine. Huh. All right. Well, I guess uh, next up uh, is a tweet that James Hilliard put out uh, a few days ago. And uh, for those not familiar with him, he is actually the author of BIP91, which was used as the tool to 
capitulate to the UASF movement while trying to seem as if people weren't. But he's claiming that he has isolated a number of flaws in BIP70, um, BitPay's payment protocol implementation, and a few different wallets that have uh, security impacts. Although he, he is saying explicitly that these would be very difficult to actually deploy or use in practice. So um, I guess I'm doing what Nopara would call uh, fear-mongering. <laughs> but pretty much the, the gist of things are um, BIP70 is pretty much something that's alters the, the way an address is accepted by a wallet and introduces a lot of friction and new potential attack vectors in general. So really, like, I'm going to just, like, go over the, the difference. Like, with a vanilla, like, Bitcoin URI, you pretty much just have the QR code that has the address and optionally amount and fee and so on hard-coded into the QR code and you simply scan it, your wallet decodes it, and then it presents the transaction for you to approve. So if you can establish secure communications with whoever you're trying to pay, like that's it, like everything's fine. You're going to get the right QR code with the right address and that's all you have to worry about. But with BIP70, you're, you're actually establishing a independent communication channel over a network which will feed you the relevant information instead of having it baked into the QR code. And part of the really the big reason that BitPay was doing this is, well, partly um, because people were altering fees um, and then getting pissed off that transactions were not confirming in time for the payment window and things like that. But also, I'm betting to some degree because BitPay likes being able to hard code fees into something that people can't easily manually alter to continue the nonsense narrative of high fees use Bitcoin Cash. But overall, like that changes the this the security of actually presenting an address or a payment request to somebody because you've now taken one communication and extended that to multiple communications, which have the opportunity of uh, a man in the middle attack uh, manipulating the actual address that the wallet winds up receiving. And just overall, like the entire thing is just a horrible fucking idea in, in my mind. But Based on you know this this strat and, and a lot of the things that uh, James Hilliard said specifically um, in talking to Nicholas Dorier, who was pretty much playing a guessing game of uh, what what the issue is, is they're trying to transition this to move away from the transaction being relayed by you. The, the spender to the network itself and simply passed off to BitPay um, who would then submit it to the network themselves. And this creates a really screwy situation where you can sign the transaction, you can 
submit it to BitPay, and then it, it can BitPay could pretty much defraud you and create a situation where your wallet doesn't think the transaction actually went through, but the BitPay or the merchant is actually in possession of that signed transaction. And so a malicious merchant could pretty much wind up defrauding you by pretending that this payment hasn't gone through, not giving you the good or service, and then later submitting it because they've been given a copy of the raw signed transaction and didn't have you submit it to the network directly yourself. And I mean, this is, you know, like, like James said, this is not really practical to exploit in, in the wild for the most part, but it's still like, it's just showing like why the hell are they trying to push BIP 70 so hard and like go completely against the, the spec and just what like the, the universal way of handling this kind of shit is in this ecosystem because it's not really offering greater security to the users. It's not really giving benefits and it seems more and more there are just problems and downsides with it. And it's like, we don't need a, a company like BitPay trying to shoehorn broken ways of handling things into Bitcoin software in this ecosystem. Like we need people actually working towards the best, most sound way to do something and people sticking with that, not crap that fragments things like leads to people. I mean, for instance, like when BIP70 was first uh, rolled out, there were people who um, developed software to decode the payment request and give you a normal address so you could pay with wallets that don't support BIP70. And as James pointed out, that is just another security vulnerability because now you need other untrusted software to actually get the address away from that. And so like you're introducing more and more trust here. So uh, there's a little bit of breaking news going on. Someone, uh, Stubaka on Twitter, uh, I think he's Pax in the troll box, uh, sent me a link to a thread from Jackson Palmer that looks like it came out in the last hour. And apparently there is a very serious vulnerability in the copay wallet because um, obviously it's a JavaScript based wallet and they use uh, the N NPM module in their wallet. And apparently uh, some malware has gotten into that module and therefore it has affected copay. Uh, and apparently I can't I can't tell who I think his name is Nicholas Noble on GitHub. He's saying that actually the malware is specifically looking for uh, the package copay um, for the uh, copay package. So or wait, no, the package in copay copay slash dash um we're not sure how to read that because it's very small text um but basically it's they think it's some kind of trojan and it might be stealing keys so yeah bitpay is not having a good day <laughs> yeah this is like uh i mean the security flaw i mean you know i don't know much about it but i mean like uh i mean i know that that idea of Ohio and it's like, that's where I was like thinking like, come on, like BIP, BIP pay has been using this different BIP. And I mean, there's like uh you know, there's a reason why most people use a core implementation is because these efficiencies are already, uh, you know, these problems are sussed out and it's about as the most efficient you can get. 
But I mean, like, yeah, that's uh, it's pretty crazy. At Copay's doing it too. Copay uses BitPay, and yeah, Bit Ohio wants to use BitPay to pay taxes, and Bitmain's going through all this trouble, even with their ABC client. I mean, like, I don't know. This is just uh, yeah, it's a headache to keep up with all those flaws over there. That's where. I mean, maybe this is another reason why you're seeing a lot of people kind of just get scared of the space because they're seeing things like this and they're not understanding that this is sort of like a a separate entity in Bitcoin. I don't know. So I think someone's quoting from the GitHub issue for Copay in this vulnerability, and they're saying that the, or maybe it's the issue for the npm module but they're saying thankfully the code with the malicious package was not deployed in any platform yet um so unclear at the moment if copay is actually affected or if it was a near miss yeah i think somebody's uh pinging me with stuff that uh it's Copay should actually be safe, but if that had been pushed into and updated and things, then yeah, this could have wound up being real bad. Well, BitPay, BitPay, BitPay. Alrighty. On to the next one, guys. Yeah, what else is going on? Tired to talk about BitPay. All right, so let's talk about Coinbase then. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. Another lawsuit. Let's talk about this. So, um, few, I think, a few episodes ago, uh, we discussed the charges or the case being dismissed against Coinbase for uh, their surprise Bcash launch and market manipulation, and the plaintiff was pretty much told to reformulate the charges into something more specific uh, with an actual legal accusation. And so they have done so and actually had to file for an extension. Um, And I think uh, it's exactly a week after uh, the previous deadline to refile charges. They finally filed on the 20th. And They've decided to make much more specific um, accusations in terms of how Coinbase actually profited off of this. Um, And pretty much are accusing them of, uh, where was it, Um, being deceptive in the fact that they uh, are making false and deceptive statements in how they handled the rollout of Bitcoin Cash, um, saying that the, the exchange had previously claimed they would make announcements when support would be listed, um, had previously said that they would not for the foreseeable future be supporting it, and then suddenly changing this out of thin air. And then um, specifically pointed at Coinbase's profits, um, both off of trading fees, as well as profits uh, through the ridiculous spread that occurred between Coinbase and other exchanges at the time. Um, while they were, um, oh, my brain, I'm sorry, guys, it is quite late for me. Um, the, the spread as a broker between other exchanges introduced another means for Coinbase to profit off this while they were 
facilitating buy orders, but really not on the Coinbase platform, letting any sell orders go through and actually shutting things down um, in terms of trading when uh, a lot of orders built up that showed people simply wanted to dump this. And really, I think, laid out a much better argument as to how Coinbase, with its deceptive practices, actually set up a dynamic where they could materially profit off of this instead of kind of what was previously just a lot more vague accusations without really showing why Coinbase gained anything or should be held liable for this. And so at this point, pretty much um, both parties have an opportunity to file another one more response each. And the next hearing is scheduled for January 31st, 2019. So I think this is probably going to wind up being a very slow motion event and probably something we're going to be checking in with now and then for quite a while at the rate things are going. Yeah, there's definitely some stuff going on in the background there where there was questionable actions going on, but at the same time, they've got so many guys, you know, close to them and, you know, paying all the right people that I'm sure it'll get dragged out and there'll probably be a settlement in the end, but you know, yeah, I imagine we'll be following it for a while. But I mean, anybody look at that chart and what they were doing at the time. It's obvious there was some stuff, shady stuff going on in the background. But like we're saying, they're paying all the right people, I guess. Mm -hmm. I just think like I, I really not think, I guess I, I don't really have any of the legal understanding to make a real analysis of the situation, but I hope that actually having a more articulated argument as to how Coinbase profited themselves, or at least could have, uh, really adds a little better luck in terms of the, the plaintiffs actually winning on this, because it, it's really absurd, the, the kind of shit that Coinbase has gotten away with as a business. And even if they are able to absorb a massive fine or a payout in a class action like this, I think they they need to get punched in the face, metaphorically speaking, and kind of shown that, like, no, you are not untouchable. Or I think we're just going to see progressively worse and worse behavior out of them in terms of how they treat their customers. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely got some shady practice i mean even with that coinbase bundle i mean like i think they've been dropping coins and adding some and talking about listing others and i mean yeah there's a there's something that needs to go on there as far as like if the sec or anybody wants to claim like there's some you know best practices that are keeping exchanges in check i mean like coinbase has just been running wild since since the since before the fork but a little before the fork but ever since for sure yeah, I think they just recently said, or I don't know if they announced it, but they've apparently dropped Bitcoin Cash from their bundle buys. Or, so there goes that. Probably because it looks really bad for your bundle when one of your coins is like, you know, going in the toilet. Whoa. Yeah, we'll see how that bundle goes. <laughs> Coming soon to a bundle near you. Massive losses. Oh. All right. 
Yeah, let's keep going. What's going on? We got some more stories to get through. So, Circle uh, has recently, for their USD coin, um, that is, a, I guess, now jointly issued with themselves and Coinbase, uh, had an attestation of funds released where a, an accounting firm, uh, Grant Thornton LLP, um, on the 16th issued a attestation that they had 127 and change million dollars in, in their custody accounts at the end of October, and that this slightly exceeded the amount of tokens for USDC in circulation. And really, I, I have a, a question here as to where the FUD for USDC is. I mean, every single thing that Tether has done in, in its entire history to prove its solvency, to prove custody of funds, has been met with nothing but screaming hordes of lunatics going, they're printing money out of thin air, that's not a real legacy audit, like it's 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 bullshit. Where where is that for USDC? Where is that for the Gemini dollar? Like what? Like what reason is there that that this this attitude towards a a attestation from a auditing firm is not good enough? Like what? Why? Why is this slung around so unevenly and, and logically inconsistently? Yeah, that's what I'd like to know, man. I mean, uh, you know, this is where when the tether fudge showed up, uh, I guess that was late last week or early this week. Like, uh, I was immediately thinking about, well, I saw this post with this attestation of funds and their audit came out. And I was just thinking like, yeah, how come nobody's getting uh, up in USDC space about, you know, where exactly all these funds are going and how exactly are they being moved around why are they going here like uh you know um pax in the chat was saying like uh you know it's confusing but i mean there are block explorers and you can look at it and you know you can dig it up i mean uh but i mean yeah people aren't really that confused i guess by usdc in the way that it's working even though it's uh you know a similar product so yeah it's a uh, it's one of those things where you could just see the basically the difference of people that are working in the traditional market and doing things to where people that are in power are happy. And then those that aren't and uh, the way that they get, you know, treated differently. It's just, it's, it shows to me that a lot of people have a vested interest in not having a, a very, how, how should I say this? Nimble and flexible company like Bitfinex be so important in, in the pricing of Bitcoin. In other words, like somebody who is not bending over backwards to to do every little thing that regulators are demanding of businesses in this ecosystem, and who is kind of asserting themselves a little more than other businesses in terms of like no. If we don't actually have to do something, we're not going to. And I really think like that that just at the root is 
pretty much the source of all of the shit flung at Tether and Bitfinex. Like this is something I've said for years is that like this is going to be one of the next steps in I guess the their quote maturation of this market. Like they governments, regulators do not like businesses that are not completely under their thumb. And they're going to do everything they can to undermine the legitimacy and the ability to operate of, of any business who is not going to just put themselves there. And Bitfinex is just one of those businesses. Yeah, I mean, like that's probably why we see that a lot more uh, people are upset with the idea of Tether than they are with these, uh, you know, it's the stable coin meme, man. It's moving forward. They're, they're happy about that one, just not the one that they can't control. Mm-hmm. All righty. So in other news, uh, this probably would have fit a little better after the main story, but oh well. Um, U.S.-based uh, mining company Gigawatt, uh, which is operating out of eastern Washington, has filed for bankruptcy. And the, the, the figures being thrown around here are really nothing to sneer at. I mean, they owe $310,000 to, uh, well, th that company's unnamed. But um, there is another uh, electric company that they patronize, Nepal Electric, which is owed over half a million dollars. So, like, this mining operation has racked up a very large amount of unpaid electrical bills. And the total liabilities, or at least the current estimate of everything, is around 10 to $50 million. And in 2017, this company actually had an ICO where they raised around $22 million of crypto to kind of facilitate and bootstrap actually building out the, these mining farms. And the, the entire business model was kind of centered around uh, and trying to help, I guess, uh, the smaller scale miners in terms of like hosting and self-contained boxes of mining equipment. And an interesting little quirk here is in the initial filing for bankruptcy papers with an outstanding liability estimate of 10 to 50 million dollars they'd actually declared their assets or worth at 0 to 50 thousand dollars and had to go through filing an amendment uh calling that a, cl a clerical error because uh the, the paperwork to file was kind of done in a rush but <laughs> Like that, this company is is really getting burned from all angles because on top of it, that they are also being sued for conducting an unregistered securities offense or offering, and the people suing them were looking to have their investment returned. So I mean, like this, like this bear market is not being kind to miners, especially miners that actually didn't put up their own capital up front to bankroll their operations, but actually sought investments from other people to do so. And it's really like, 
you know, the longer we stay down in these price ranges, the more it is going to really burn <laughs> large scale miners. I mean, depending on how long we, we really take before we start leveling out and finding a bottom, like this really could be <laughs> kind of the market move that bankrupts Bitmain. And I mean, really looking back at the, the last bear market, like Bitmain barely survived that. And they really only did because they were able to run at a larger scale than their competitors and ran their competitors out of business. And then things started moving in the other direction at the right time. And considering a lot of the big financial uh, missteps that Bitmain's been making, I mean, in, in the next year or so, it's really not out of the, the realm of reason that we might be seeing a headline saying Bitmain is filing for bankruptcy and not a, a smaller, lesser known operation like Gigawatt. Yeah, I mean, uh, similar to Bitmain, I mean, like, you know, it's just like coming from multiple angles on this story. I mean, like you were saying, I mean, they did an ICO, which became an, you know, an, an unregistered security that they've got to deal with that case. And um, I mean, it's, it's not just a, uh, that and the price it's also like uh you know they were facing problems with uh basically like uh they were in washington state and washington state was one of those where people are very uh fervent about climate change and all that but about mining and climate change really hurt them i mean there was a big move against those uh mining farms after they got set up there in washington where the local populace was not happy about that and uh i mean you know, they're just, uh, they've got all these problems from multiple sides. We've seen it in Canada. And I mean, like, I know the next story gets into it where it's just like, you know, these guys get these contracts and they jump in there. And then all of a sudden, you know, the uh, regulatory problems sort of sh start propping up and, uh, and you have to deal with all this, uh, all this FUD. And if you don't, I mean, yeah, you can end up uh, underwater real quick whenever you're dealing with this, all these different factors coming at you. Well, I mean, it's just markets like you, you can't actually predict what they're going to do. And that's the whole nature of really a business is you're trying to predict whether the market will value what you do or not and hoping they do, because if they don't, well, you're losing money and not making it. And that is not how to run a successful business. Hard times in the mining ecosystem, man. Mm -hmm. And that is continuing in this next story, which is really kind of fucking absurd when you really look at the, the core of it. So uh, Norway previously had a, a tax subsidy in, in place for large uh, industrial operations, which miners of cryptocurrencies uh, qualified for. And pretty much they have a consumption tax on electricity. And once you move beyond 0.5 megawatts, um, you pretty much only have to pay uh, 0.0056 cents per kilowatt hour, as opposed to the standard rate, which is about 2 cents per kilowatt hour. And... Norway has pretty much out of nowhere and with no discussion or no warning 
uh, to the mining ecosystem in the country, stated that after the new year, they are pretty much no longer qualifying for this uh, industrial Hello? Okay, sorry. Accidentally oh, yeah, muted my back. mic. But um, yeah, so after the new year, they no longer qualify for this tax subsidy. And like this is like going to really affect, especially with the compounding aspect of the price going down, any miners operating in Norway. And the, the reason for doing this is really just insane. Like at the point of like, it literally makes me want to smack my head and go, how fucking absolutely retarded being can you be to some of the people in the Norwegian government? Um, the a quote from uh, Lars Haltebrecken, who's one of the, the parliament representatives that uh, pushed for and was involved in the report that led to this, says, Norway cannot continue to provide huge tax incentives for the most dirty form of cryptographic output like Bitcoin. It requires a lot of energy and generates large greenhouse gas emissions globally. Norway gets more than 95% of its electricity from renewable carbon neutral sources. So in what fucking deluded, retarded world do you think making it more expensive to mine in your country with a 95% or plus like source of renewable energy, do you think it's going to help lower carbon emissions from Bitcoin mining? Like how completely fucking stupid do you have to be to think that is a rational train of thought? Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, that's what I was saying. I mean, like all this FUD on the electric, on the energy consumption, and what Bitcoin mining is doing, and the way that it secures, like all this stuff, really needs to be cleared up. And I mean, like I'm glad there are some guys out there working on all that because. I mean, this is what happens. I mean, it's a political blowback. I mean, that was a political, you know, it's it's a political attack. I mean, it's something where they could say, look, Bitcoin's using X amount of energy, X amount of energy. We can put that in the context of it being a coal burning plant. And we can say, like, you're putting out this much um, greenhouse gases and how this is a terrible thing for the climate whenever you're not going through the nuance of like, yeah, this is mostly renewable energy. I mean, most of these mining firms, I mean, like, you know, what it was uh, Bitfury had a $35 million mining uh, contract earlier this year in March with Norway. And so, I mean, like, I imagine they're doing setting up all like uh, as much as they can on renewables. That's one of the main things that helps miners become efficient is the fact that they're getting this through cheap energy and not through old practices that cost a lot for the energy. So. I mean, like, this has got to be pushed back. This is like we're seeing basically in like in Washington and here in Norway. And uh, I suspect other places, a lot of people run with that narrative of like, yeah, but Bitcoin's going to burn down the world. And um, yeah, we've really got to push back on that. 
as much as possible to talk about how, you know, it's all about the infrastructure and that you're using renewable energies and through the value proposition, you're kind of, um, you know, uh, coaxed into finding more efficient ways to mine with renewable energies. And that includes improving renewable energies efficiencies. And I mean, it should help in the energy consumption. I mean, it's kind of difficult to explain like, uh, you know, I mean, like, yeah, all these hospitals are running off of, uh, you know, these old plants and they've got all these TVs running all of, on, on every floor that nobody's watching. And uh, we could talk about how that's wasting electricity, but you know, they don't want to get into those discussions. It's a uh, it's a political push at attacking Bitcoin. And unfortunately, it's working in some areas. Yeah, but like as Shinobi pointed out, this is kind of like double stupidity because on one hand, obviously they believe in this idea that Bitcoin is going to kill the planet, which is one stupidity in itself because that's based on absolutely no accurate or substantial evidence and all of the studies we've seen so far except for maybe one that's kind of in development is mostly based on extrapolations that don't make sense like this whole idea that the number the that each transaction requires like or that the number of transactions has any effect whatsoever on the energy use is stupid so any any study that has that kind of statistic in it is should just be ignored flat out but the second stupidity is that, see, if I was a country and I believed that Bitcoin used a lot of dirty sources of energy, well, my response would be, well, we use clean sources. So let's encourage it to come here so that we can like contribute to, you know, the development of alternative energy sources for Bitcoin mining. So it's it's two levels of stupidity. It's one the belief is stupid and to the response is stupid because it achieves the opposite of what they supposedly want. Yeah. And I mean, that cost of uh, energy com consumption per transaction like that, you know, that, uh, that thread that Jonathan wrote out, it's like, uh, it shows that it's going down. And I mean, that's because of increased efficiencies and efficiencies in mining equipment. But I mean, uh, you know, these mining firms, in order to make money, it makes sense for them to go after this renewable energy. And yeah, we just have to keep we have to keep firing back and saying that Bitcoin's infrastructure is using renewable energies wherever possible. And, you know, I mean, like eventually it'll bleed out anybody that's doing something stupid, like spending a bunch of money on coal to power their miners, because the renewable energies guys will be making so much more with their with their uh, with their mining rewards because of the fact that they're paying so much less for energy. So, I mean, like it's something that will eventually play out naturally, but still, it's a uh, it's aggravating to see. And um, you know, it does get these arguments going where I've seen some guys talking about, well, how secure is the network now that you know the hash rate's going down, and what all does this mean? And you know, and uh, you know, got guys like uh, you know. Dan in the chat talking about, you know, their mining buddies are talking about proof of stake, proof of work, uh, merge mining and all this and how it could still be used. And I mean, it's uh, it's upsetting because it's really just all based off of, uh, you know, misconstrued information and uh, bad facts. So, uh, yeah, we need to keep counteracting. We can need to keep countering that narrative. However, uh, however we can. I mean, mainly just talking about how Bitcoin is using renewables and. I mean, uh, just sort of 
beating back at home, like just sort of beating in the idea that this is about the infrastructure that you, that Bitcoin mining is using. I mean, if you look at that, it's mostly hydroelectric dams. It's mostly people that are using a combination of solar wind and hydroelectric and, you know, people that aren't and that are, uh, you know, just buying off the grid. I mean, like, um, you know, they're, uh, they're doing it for now, but I mean, like, it's not really uh, the greater percentage of the network. I mean, we should just keep reinforcing that. Yep. Alrighty, so we have four more things to get through. Underlay, I need sleep. All right. So, in Venezuela, a large department store called a Traki or Traki, I no idea how to pronounce it, um, is supposedly accepting uh, cryptocurrencies. And this was originally brought to people's attention um, by a Reddit post where a, a girl claimed to be able to purchase a large amount of school supplies and clothes uh, with around $260 in Bitcoin that was donated uh, by Reddit to help kids' needs in the country with everything going on down there. And there's actually a sign-up with the Tracky logo um, claiming to accept cryptocurrencies. And supposedly, uh, as of right now, uh, this company is accepting Bitcoin, Dash, Ethereum, Litecoin, and Bcash, although no idea which Bcash. And... Like, if this is true, I mean, this is potentially stupidly huge in terms of, you know, the growth of Bitcoin. Like, I mean, to actually see a major conventional business in a country that is experiencing insane amounts of currency devaluation right now turn to cryptocurrencies because of the, the relative stability of it compared to their own currency it would be huge. And, you know, I, before we went on air, like I was really thinking about this a lot in terms of like the big picture, long-term growth dynamic of everything. And, Really, I think that uh, a large part of of the synergy between countries like Venezuela and the West are really what's going to drive, I think, the 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 maturation and adoption of things. Where I think we'll have mostly like large capital from Western countries, like the United States. It's like pretty much the the bankers and Wall Street and the the wealthy shoving all their capital into Bitcoin and being the contributing factor to massive growth in terms of price and market cap, and that that dynamic, the the more it plays out, is just going to increase more and more the stability of Bitcoin in terms of price and valuation. And the more it grows and the more stable it gets, the, the more it makes sense to use transactionally as a currency in third world countries that aren't having as severe a, as a problem as Venezuela. 
And so like just like this dynamic playing out, I think really what we're going to see over the next 10 years is Bitcoin catch on more and more in the West, in the developed world, simply as an investment or a store of value. And the more that that happens in, in the West, the, the more it's going to facilitate and the more places it'll help make sense in, in the developing world for it to actually be used as a currency. And so I, I, I really see like that as really the core dynamic that's going to play out over the next 10 years, where it's going to be the Western developed nations really pushing the price increase and growth and looking much more at it as an investment, like an analog to like a stock or gold in terms of how they're really looking at its utility. And that that is what's going to allow people in other parts of the world to actually use it as a currency and not really so much look at it as an investment, but it is just something they can keep their money without crazy devaluations and actually spend it. And it's like, it's really just weird to kind of think about that. Like in a way, like you will have, like if I'm right about like how these dynamics will play out, like you'll effectively have the wealthy in the West who have traditionally exploited and caused economic problems for these parts of the world effectively bankrolling the the thing that's going to help people in these countries in in terms of giving them access to to economic tools that aren't constantly eroding their wealth yeah you know that's like uh it's one of those interesting theories and going forward in the future it's like where i don't know i try and uh discuss this with people here in the area that are uh you know fairly well to do and it always is kind of like this uh i don't know it's like this misunderstanding of like the way that you know central banks have played a role in some of that economic fallout on uh, these third world countries and i know that there's a lot of people in this area that want to help people but they don't understand how to help people other than to go protest or to go and uh you know scream on facebook or twitter or share a bunch of posts about something where I'm hopeful that eventually the people will kind of wake up to the idea that if you invest in Bitcoin, you're kind of you're you're investing in, you know, not just uh, your ability to have more purchasing power in the future, but you're also helping some of these other countries stand up on a leg while uh, they're being run through hyperinflation. And I mean, um, you know, that's one of these things with this business. I hope it is true, man, because a lot of Venezuelans over there are hurting from that. And, uh, you know, that's where eventually you know, yeah, the currency aspects of it. I mean, like I see it coming on through multiple angles, right? Like, I mean, lightning networks here. I mean, we've got a uh, greater efficiency with SegWit already. And uh, we got liquid side chains. We got uh, lots of things that are helping, you know, the whole uh, medium of exchange of Bitcoin and the liquidity of it. But I mean, like, yeah, the actual incentive to use it, it's like uh, going through hyperinflation. Eventually a business is going to say like, um, you know, you're telling us to accept this, but like I'm living this life where I can't afford to pay my bills because of the fact that the currency we're using is just constantly being devalued. And so as a business, I have to do this just to stand on a leg and start accepting 
Bitcoin as a payment and um, as a payment mechanism. So, I mean, like uh, it's going to come on through multiple angles, but I definitely see that as where it's like people can, you know, invest in helping others sort of step outside that third party system that's causing so many troubles. And I mean, like, uh, it, I, I don't know, it's hard to explain and and get and some people get it because uh, I've been trying for a while. And, um, you know, I mean, I get a lot of pushback when I start talking about that. And uh, I don't know why I'm still trying to figure all that out. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Oh, oops. I moved my mic up. All right. All right. Three more to go. You, you have anything yeah. to say, Gene? Uh, nope. Not on Venezuela in particular. Alrighty. Well, then, next up, uh, at an increasing rate of speed as I get sleep here. Uh, Switzerland almost did a very fucked up thing. Um, and actually at the behest of a large number of uh, crypto advocates decided to drop it from a bill, but they were considering adding a legal requirement for every legal person. So again, like legal person generally includes corporations and associations and things as well. Um, pretty much would, they wanted to legally require them to have a bank account. So it, it would have, if, if that had stayed in and this had passed in that state, it, it, it would have been a crime as a, a person, as a business, as a nonprofit to not have a bank account. And that, well, obviously that's, that is just completely insane and fucked up in its own right. But that would have pretty much made it illegal to operate as a cryptocurrency only business. Yeah. So the, the, this was talked about um, specifically among the people at the Bitcoin association in Switzerland in March earlier this year, where they made a blog post that said the federal council drafted legislation to comply with the latest recommendations of the global forum for transparency and tax taxation of the OECD in order to increase transparency regarding the beneficiary owners of Swiss companies. The draft proposes among other things to make ban uh, bank accounts mandatory for all legal persons. And then they said this law threatens our very existence. If enacted, uh, Bitcoin, Association, association, Switzerland would not be allowed to exist any longer as it is unlikely that we would find a Swiss bank that provides us with an account. Getting a bank account sounds simple, but for crypto startups, it is not. Most Swiss banks refuse to enter into a business relationship with any entity that has Bitcoin in its name or is otherwise, otherwise related to cryptocurrencies or blockchain technology. Um, and so they recently posted, I think it was the 24th, they said that this a uh, compulsory bank account part was dropped from the the proposal for the law. So luckily that won't happen. But yeah, really weird thing to do because because uh, it, it, it would really be scary um, if that went through and it actually applies to just regular private citizens. Like there's a bunch of people who just can't get bank accounts. So you would either have to criminalize the banks 
for not giving everyone bank accounts on the basis that they have insufficient identity documentation, or you would have to force them to relax the standards, or you would be criminalizing people who just can't get bank accounts because a bank is a business. And if they refuse to do business business with you, that's not, that's like, you, you, what do you do? Like, you just can't, uh, like, there's a lot of people who just can't get bank accounts, even if they do have identity and identity documents. There's, uh, I think I've mentioned it several times. There's a thing called world check, which is a global blacklist that the banks uh, add. I don't know exactly what the, addition processes, but a lot of the sources for WorldCheck are pretty despicable and not should not be considered uh, legitimate sources of information, some of which include just gossip uh, and like a lot of what would be considered hate websites uh, that make it part of their business to often post salacious allegations about people. And then this end up ends up getting filtered into the WorldCheck system, which means you could literally be have your bank account uh, closed down because a black you were added to a blacklist which pulls its sources from you know the equivalent of 4chan uh, so that's pretty scary uh, I did I didn't look to see whether um, whether they would do that kind of thing if it would be a crime to just not apply for a bank account or if it would be a crime for the banks to not allow you to get a bank with them or something like that but either way it's not a good idea and that's a good thing that um, they're still allowing people to not have bank accounts. Yeah, certainly a good thing if they want to stay up at the forefront with the space. Mm -hmm. All right, second to last. This is actually pretty interesting. So in France, there are apparently... Uh, very commonly small uh, tobacco shops and starting uh, from the 1st of January 3,000 to 4,000 of these shops will be equipped with software allowing them to sell Bitcoin voucher coupons and the, these will pretty much be sold in different uh, denominations uh, 50, 100 or 250 euros uh, the article from Toshi Times I'm reading is saying but they, they have already uh, made a deal with a company by media who will be developing and providing the software for this. And uh, Kepler K, who will be linking all of these shops into an exchange order book and liquidity pool to facilitate buying this. And like this would be huge because, you know, from everything I've looked at in this, it seems like these shops are, are pretty uh, universal and common all over France. And this would open up an immediate, very frictionless way for people to simply get their hands on Bitcoin without any hassle or trouble. And, you know, the, the, the more, the, the more on ramps you build like this, the, the, the less friction it is when, when things really turn around that is preventing more new people from flooding into this space and actually getting their hands on Bitcoin. And I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, like that's, you need a huge diversity in those options because it's not really practical to expect a company like Coinbase to have a 
and account for every person on the planet and, and actually manage a business at that scale. Like it's, if you start looking at on ramps for normal people as if they have to be like the thing with an account where you, you verify your identity, you really following that through to the end. Well, then it's the, the only places people will be able to get their hands on cryptocurrencies are things like Citibank or Bank of America, because the, the scale and scope of a business like that it, it would be absurdly huge. And we need more uh, of these kinds of systems where it's a lot less friction, a lot less hassle, and you might have a small premium on it, but like at the end of the day, that that allows a lot more scale to be hit when you can simply walk into a business and get the equivalent of a gift card loaded in 30 seconds as opposed to have to go through the, the huge privacy loss that that involves registering with a business having them go through the verification process like having them bear the costs of, of validating and storing all of your data i mean it's not it's not really practical to to expect literally every person on the planet to get bitcoin in that way and, and not have that, that wind up falling victim to huge centralization pressures in terms of businesses that provide that service. Yeah, man, it's good to see, you know, it's like uh, just some different places that you can buy Bitcoin from. I mean, uh, I'm just trying to dig up how many people are still smoking in France because I know that that's like uh, still pretty posh, but it looks like just a quarter of the country, 25%. So, Hey, that's a lot of people walking in and out of shops that have access to Bitcoin now. Mm-hmm. All righty. And I guess last up, uh, the SEC has published their website on ICOs. And it is really strange seeing www.sec.gov slash ICO in my web browser. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so this is pretty much just a, a very simple site where they've rolled through uh, different categories of information, pretty much looking at things from uh, the professional point of view, the, the investor's point of view, a uh, bar tracking all of the uh, recent updates uh, regarding ICOs that the SEC has made. And it looks like they're really just going to really build this out into an informational center that they can point at and go, there's no more excuses in terms of people trying to act like there is gray area and launch securities tokens without registration or try to kind of walk that gray area and creates inventive excuses as to why they aren't a security. And I, I think when they really finish this and roll this out, that this is going to be gloves off time. And from that point on, it is just going to be harsh, strict enforcement, and that's it. And no more deal cutting, no more playing nice just because things weren't clearly defined prior to this. Like it, this, 
this will be the end uh, of the Wild West days as far as the SEC is concerned. And if you cross a line after that, you're you're pretty much going to be fucked. Yeah, it's real odd to see sec.gov slash ICO and then, uh, you know, talking about it as like, this is the future of raising money. And uh, I mean, it kind of does. I don't know. It makes me think of like where this uh, next bull run is going to be. And I can imagine just like a world of legit ICOs. I mean, I saw um, we didn't really cover it, but recently there was a story on Overstock uh, going all in on crypto where uh, they were basically a. Uh, you know, using a uh, venture, uh, like I think it's called Medici Adventures. Like uh, it's a, it's another company that they're setting up where it's all just blockchain-based solutions. And I was looking at it, and it really does look like an ICO. And uh, I'm just thinking, like, yeah, we're gonna go into the world of where people have these legit ICOs everywhere, and um, you know, doing actual fundraising. So, yeah, it's uh, I don't know, it's a weird thing to look at, but. I don't know. I guess uh, in the near future, we're going to see a lot of people following these guidelines. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Janine, speak or cough up a thought for final uh, thoughts. <laughs> well, my final thought is just to kind of give an update on the Bitcoin ATM that showed up in Frankfurt, it's still running and it's apparently a uh, kind of a, they're calling it a sensation in the area that it popped up in. Um, I think it's in a cafe somewhere. It's in, it's in a store uh, in Frankfurt, Sachsenhausen. And uh, according to the article, I think they mentioned something about only one official in the area having a problem with it, but it's otherwise um, operating fine and people are using it. Uh, so that's a good thing because there hasn't been any, uh, as far as we know, legal Bitcoin ATMs in Germany for a while now. Pretty nice. Yeah, and uh, my final thought is, uh, hey, we got a uh, Bitcoin meetup this Thursday in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Come check that out just to get together. But I really wanted to talk for a second just about um, Coin Center news. Like uh, I was breezing, you know, I'm just like looking through CCN on a regular basis. And I saw this article. It's just like atrocious talking about should have used a blockchain talking about the VA unable to process GI Bill payments for veterans. And it goes into this very long, poorly cited puff piece about how the VA should use Ripple because, uh, you know, Ripple has deep connections to the bank industry and could facilitate instant payments some way or another. Like, uh, they just don't have any real information, but, you know, like we should use this. And it's just a terrible puff piece that's all like, veteran va like problems within like there are problems within the va but like the way things are right now it's very easy for me to go you know get my uh you know my benefits and then just immediately get fiat for it i mean and uh you know i don't have to be within this permission system where you're gonna have to track everything that i do and uh it's just super aggravating to see you know um them do this like puff piece on uh the va and the way that they're i mean you know it just i don't know as I see a lot of times like pieces where people like just grab a 
problem in the VA and they're like, they're going to fix it. It's like the GI bill and the way that the benefits are being dispensed, like it might be slow to actually get your benefits, which it's improved, but it works. Like, why are you going to try and screw it up and place ripple in the middle of it? Like get real coin center news. That's the stupidest story ever. Should have used a blockchain. Get out of here with that shit, man. I'm sorry. Just like, uh, I was frustrated as hell about that last night. And, uh, I mean, it's just, it's stupid, man. I mean, like, uh, Ripple, I mean, come on, like we're talking about veterans that stand up and fight for, uh, you know, I mean, different reasons. But I mean, like, you know, I had a reason as far as like, you know, what an American should be and independent and free and all that. And then you're just going to throw somebody in this permission system of Ripple. It's like, uh, man, I mean, I don't know. I'm just uh, just a little aggravated on that piece and uh, the way that they just like um, throw veterans into this Ripple piece. It's aggravating. It's like uh, think of the children. It's just a convenient heartstring pulling narrative. Right, that's what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a plea to your emotions. Whenever there's like, ah, it's... all right. Well, are they gonna are they gonna rename XRP to XRP Pew? <laughs> yeah, XRP Pew, and uh, yeah, you can only use it in Warzone. All right. Well, my final thought um, has absolutely nothing to do with Bitcoin, but it's fucking hysterical. So, um, everybody after this should Google Japan cybersecurity minister because the Japanese cybersecurity minister, the guy responsible for cybersecurity policy in Japan has recently admitted that he has never used a computer. <laughs> well, and if you want to show that you understand computers, don't even use Google to look that up. Use DuckDuckGo. There you go. <laughs> Like, and just a final point of thought, yeah. Cyber Monday, Bitcoin deals, jump in, man. It's called it's called Black Friday. Well, now that Black Friday is over. Black but. Monday. Oh man. Cyber All Cyber right. Monday. Alrighty. My brain is broken. I think that that's all folks. Yeah, all right. We're going to let Shinobi go to sleep. And, uh, you know, it's hard getting all this stuff together on timing and stuff. So uh, might not be around Wednesday. Might be back Sunday. We'll get back for sure on that, though. Let you know on a tweet. When right, Shinobi everybody. was saying that, when you were saying that you wanted to tell us something funny, I thought you were going to say something about what you did to No Par's balcony. No. All right. That's it. <laughs> Goodbye. Good night, all. I'll see you later. <laughs> I'll be the same.